What's up, guys? It's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. This week, to celebrate the 100th episode of the Rewatchables podcast, Quentin Tarantino returns for the third and final movie in his three-part series with us. In the final episode, Bill Simmons and Sean Fennessy discuss with Quentin one of his favorite movies, the 1990 crime thriller King of New York. Make sure to check out this special episode and follow at The Rewatchables on Twitter for highlights of all 100 episodes. Basketball is very good. The Nuggets should trade no one. Kawhi should rest even more games. The Knicks should build around Marcus Morris. Basketball is very good. Hello and welcome to the Ringer NBA show. This is the group chat. It me, Justin Verrier. Chris Ryan is not with us. He is on location filming a super secret project that they will bring to you in the near future. But with me... From Texas, our first of two guests from Texas. He is the Brandon Clark to my Taylor Jenkins. It is Jonathan Charks. What's up, buddy? Nice. How you doing, man? I am great. How are you? Hey, I'm loving these Grizzlies. My guy <laughs> Taylor Jenkins, coach of the year. Let's get it going. Yeah. We'll get to the Grizzlies uh, on today's episode. We're going to talk a bunch about the midseason or the NBA at the midseason point. I think officially today is the halfway point of the 2019-20 season. We have five questions for Charks that are the most interesting ones going forward in the second half, according to me. And then eventually we will bring on Rob Mahoney for his first appearance on the Ringer NBA show to talk. That's big. Yeah, a little bit more in depth about the Bucks. Breaking his seal there, Justin. Yeah, he's he's a big get for us, you know? It took a lot to really convince him to come on. A mid-season acquisition, yeah. There you go. Perfect. Uh, So let's talk about these Grizzlies, Charks. Last night, one of the more exciting games that I've watched in a very long time. Uh, They took it to the Rockets. John Morant had a dazzling play pretty much every two seconds. And that ended up being the Grizzlies' sixth win in a row. They are now pretty solidly in that eighth spot in the Western Conference. And to me, I think they look like probably the best team in that pretty tight race toward the bottom of the West. Uh, So let's get to our first question for you. Are the Grizzlies for real? I think so. I think they found something. I don't think they're going to fall back too much from here. I'm not sure they they actually make this number eight seed, but I don't think they're going to be where they thought they were at the start of the season. Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway from last night was just how measured and mature they are, despite the fact that the core of their team comes from incredibly young players. John Moran is obviously a rookie. Jaron Jackson Jr. in his second year, and even Brandon Clark uh, is playing significant minutes for them. He's also a rookie. It just feels like they have already put together a team that is able to match up with a lot of different teams. It seems like they have a very versatile roster and also kind of wise beyond their years. Ja was just like kind of going at Harden at one point. Uh, where Harden kind of slumped off of him, I, I think on a screen, and Ja just like drilled a top of the key three and was just like, don't do that. Like, he used much more profane words, but uh, he's already playing like a superstar. And I think that's really encouraging to see, not only going forward with this core, but perhaps throughout the rest of the second half. Yeah, all the pieces fit really well together, which is really impressive for a young team. Well, we were talking in Slack last night about the Kings and the Grizzlies. And I feel like John, De'Aaron, Fox are fairly similar players. But you look at their teams, right? De'Aaron's playing with a bunch of older guys, not a lot of floor spacing. The, the game is a little slower. He has no room to get to the rim. Whereas Jaw's playing in a fast-paced system. 
He has three-point shooting everywhere around him. So like, even though Ja is not shooting a lot of threes, he doesn't have to on this team because they space the floor for him and he can find the actual shooters. Yeah, I, I think the Kings are a particularly good comp because it does feel like the Grizzlies are becoming the Kings of this season, right? And I think it's really interesting that amongst the teams that we all expected to perhaps take a mini leap, you know, the young teams that have a a star or soon to be star. And perhaps those are the teams that would like crack into the AC. And I'm thinking about the Suns, thinking about the Kings. I'm thinking about the Timberwolves. And all of a sudden the Grizzlies who we all expected to be a couple of years away, they've kind of leaped ahead of those teams. And even if they don't get the eighth seed, I do feel like they have perhaps the brightest future of any of those teams, just considering uh, just like what they've been able to build and like how they could just really only need just supplementary pieces around this Morant, Jaron Jackson core that they built. One guy that I think you are particularly excited on, and this is a very Sharks pick, is DeAnthony Melton. Can you tell us a little I bit? I was just going to say, you forgot the third member of the core, the big three here. <laughs> well, no, Brandon Clark has to be in there. So he, That's Melton's true. It's a big four. It's a big four. Melton's the fourth. So they basically had a challenge trade uh, with the Suns in which they gave Javon Carter, right, to the Suns? Yeah. Well, really what it was, the Suns were dumping Josh Jackson's salary. Right. And everyone was like, oh man, if the Grizzlies can get Josh Jackson going, top five pick. But I think what really happened was the Grizzlies wanted DeAnthony Melton the whole time, mm. which no one, no one really saw coming. And like these numbers, his numbers, they, like, they don't even seem plausible. So check this out, Justin. When Melton's on the floor, the Grizzlies are plus 12 this season. When Melton's off the floor, they're minus seven. That's a 19 points net rating. That's like LeBron, Kawhi Leonard, like Giannis-like numbers. It's unbelievable. Yeah, that's super surprising, especially because you'd expect a backcourt of Melton and Morant to cause a lot of issues in terms of spacing, no? Yeah, I mean, Melton is a six-foot-two shooting guard who doesn't shoot threes. So you look at him, you're like, well, what's his place in the league? You can see why he fell to the second round. But and I think this is where you can really see the value of net rating because in a different world, like five years ago, you might see someone say, oh, you know, Melton makes great plays. Everyone's like, whatever, who cares? Bench player doesn't matter. But the numbers kind of speak for themselves. And when he's on the floor, he just, it's bizarre, man. He just seems to always be in the right place at the right time, whether it's offense or defense. I was looking like the one numbers he does have are his steal and block numbers. He kind of plays like a much bigger player. He creates a lot of fast breaks by turning their team over. And on the open floor, he makes great passes. He makes a lot of great decisions too. Like he's just really, he's one of the most unique players in the NBA. And it's freaking amazing how good he's been. And really, Justin, their, their run started when he got in the rotation in early December. That's when it really changed for them. Right. It definitely helps that John Morant is shooting three as well. He's up to 41% on the season, which I think is is surprising for anyone who watched him in college. Everyone expected, I think, Charks, you wrote about this, when he was still at Murray State, we expected him to struggle from the three-point line, uh, still shooting them at low volume, but that's encouraging, and it helps, you know, be like you're able to play Melton perhaps even more when you have that. Dylan Brooks, another guy who's really taken a leap this year. Uh, obviously, he was involved in the infamous Brooks non-trade that happened last year where... Yeah, the Brooks brothers, yeah. The, the, the Brooks brothers, right. Uh, it, it seemed like the Grizzlies would end up with Kelly Oubre. And I think earlier this season, everyone was looking at Oubre's fast start and thinking, man, what if the Grizzlies had him? He'd be a great fit on the wing. But all of a sudden, Brooks is healthy. He's playing more. 
shooting 36% from three-point land, and he does feel like uh, just a critical part of that rotation. I think altogether, though, I'm most encouraged, just because a lot of young teams, everyone talks about identity. Like, who are they? How are they going to play? Like, really, like, how do they fit into the, the fabric of the league? I think the best thing that the Grizzlies have going for them is they immediately have an identity. They once had grit and grind, but now this is just like run and gun. And you could see that they play with this just like energy and spirit. And you have to credit, if not Jackson, then definitely Morant for that. It feels like this team plays like a Morant team. And that's super encouraging if you're just like trying to build something from the ground up. Well, I mean, really Jenkins, but we'll let, we'll let that slide. <laughs> right. All those years I guess battling you in the post. I guess it's like, um, you know, maybe it can be like Fast and Furious. Because uh-huh. it's, it's like the exact opposite of Grit and Grind, right? Yeah. Instead of a slow it down team, it's super, super fast. Right. It's the complete it's opposite. Threes. And yet there's something at the core that feels very familiar. It feels like there's just something there. It's like it's spirit. It's energy. I don't know what it is, but like it definitely feels like they play with... Uh, a charisma, right? And it provides almost armor for a young team where you probably think that you could play against the Spurs, the Rockets, and the Warriors. You know what I mean? Yeah, they're definitely playing with a lot of confidence. And the way they play, it's I guess maybe it's like they kind of dictate the style of the game. Yes. Right? When it was grit and grind, like we're going to make you play slower. And now like they're so fast, they spread the floor so well, and they're pretty aggressive on defense. So they kind of make you spread, they make you play faster. There was a game against the Spurs where it was like 135, 125. And the Spurs don't want to run the ball, but they really had no choice but to push the taste because they were doing all the time the Grizzlies. Right. And so now a team that we all expected to be pretty significant sellers at the deadline, considering that they have two players that a lot of contenders probably covet uh, in Jay Crowder and then Andre Iguodala, who is somewhere in the Bay, probably reading like Steve Jobs' biography right now. He's uh, golfing right now as we speak. <laughs> right, right. Uh, all of a sudden, I wonder if the Grizzlies flip the other way and they're a team that could be looking to add pieces. Now, the Iguodala thing is interesting. I tweeted last night. I, I got off of uh, out of retirement on, on the Twitters and fired off a Ooh, tweet. Oh, there's breaking news. Yeah, there I, you go. I know. But isn't Andre Iguodala, and by the way, I got, a, I got an RT from our guy, Isaac, who is nursing oh, that's a, major, an illness major behind moves. this uh, divider between us right now. but Playing through injury, you know. <laughs> but thank you for for contributing with that RT, man. I appreciate that. Con- <laughs> considering your, your tremendous following on Twitter now. <laughs> tremendous. I just love to champion good content. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Uh, but, I mean, every team probably needs an Iguodala, not only just the LA teams who uh, are the ones that you most often hear with Iguodala, but also the Dallas you know, the Sixers, he would fit there, even though the money would be tough to really kind of match. But wouldn't it be great if Iguodala just all of a sudden decided that he just wants to stay in Memphis and make a go with this team? I think stay in Memphis would imply that he's ever been to Memphis (laughs) in the last six months. (laughs) That's a great point. Um, But that's probably not going to happen. It does feel like they need one player like that. And all of a sudden, that's enough to perhaps propel them in this eighth seed race. Because one of the biggest questions, I think, which is ancillary to the whole question about the Grizz going forward into the second half, is what is going to happen in this eighth seed race for uh, the Western Conference. Uh, It feels like every team is pretty much in it, except for the Warriors. Uh, And even they, at some point, will get Steph Curry back and maybe even Klay Thompson. 
Uh, and you'd expect, considering that they probably want to figure out the D'Angelo Russell-Steph Curry backcourt, that they'll probably play those guys a little bit more than you expect for uh, a season that just like isn't going anywhere. And so at the very least, they won't be a tough out, or at least I expect them not to be. But you have the Grizzlies, the Spurs, the Blazers, the Suns, the Timberwolves, the Kings, and the Pelicans. All of them are reasonably still in them. The Pelicans are the farthest back at four games uh, from the Grizzlies, but Zion could be starting as soon as tomorrow. Yeah. And, and so I wonder, Charks, uh, if you're sizing up this Royal Rumble, who would you put your money on going forward? Yeah, this is suddenly pretty interesting. Like, it was pretty miserable for the first half of the season, but a lot of those teams you mentioned have kind of figured things out and are playing better right now. I'm going to go with the Pelicans. Your, your Pelicans. My Pelicans. I really believe in Zion. I mean, you saw what you could do in the preseason. The rest of their players are playing well. And I just think uh, if you can play Zion, Ingram, Lonzo, Drew, Redick, that could be like a top five lineup in the league right now. Yeah, I agree that perhaps like on paper, they probably have the best team. It's the same case you would make for them going into the season as the AC is just they're surprisingly deep in veterans. And if Zion is who we all expect him to be, this team could be pretty good. They're already playing, as you wrote pretty recently for us uh, on the website, they're already playing significantly better before Zion even gets there. And if all like parties are healthy and nobody gets traded, all of a sudden you have a pretty good core. My question, and perhaps this is because I've seen this story before, is are all of those guys who have been hurt earlier this season going to be available? Are we expecting them to be healthy because they've been hurt earlier in the season? Is that just like kind of a fallacy? Because even during this mini run that they've kind of had, Drew Holiday hasn't played in the last five or so games. Derek Favors has been in and out of the lineup, as everyone knows. And while they've been really good with him in there, I do wonder like long-term how many of these guys are going to show up. Uh, But... I would go Spurs, I think. And I think for similar reasons, I I think that there's just enough veteran talent there. And it's kind of funny how we were writing off the Spurs. Everyone was writing their obituaries. And, and honestly, probably more than ever before, they are warranted. But then LaMarcus Aldridge just takes two steps back and all of a sudden this is a different team. You know? It's amazing how that works, right? <laughs> right. Sometimes, you know, it isn't that complicated. LaMarcus is like 35. Shoot threes, man. It's easier. I don't know. It, it just seems like there's enough just institutional knowledge there and, and just history with them doing this exact same thing. And, you know, if you look, the team isn't that bad. I think everyone expected them to play much better than they have this season. And considering uh, maybe if the West wasn't this tight, this would be the end of the Spurs. But they still have a lot of guys and they have a lot of guys with upside where they're a team that doesn't typically make a move at the deadline, but guys like DeJounte Murray could take another step, Derek White, and you've seen what can happen with a little bit of space. Not only is Aldridge adding the three-pointer and the added value of a three-pointer into their offense, you've seen other guys play off of him and have a little bit more freedom, and I don't know. To me, that just it just makes a lot of sense for the Spurs to kind of pop in there. There's actually some similarities between Memphis and San Antonio and that they're both actually powered by their bench. Mm. If you look at their net rating numbers, their benches are kind of winning games for them. And the change for San Antonio is now with LaMarcus shooting threes, they can play even with their starters. Because the start of the season, they were getting blitzed when it was LaMarcus and DeRozan because both those guys were kind of getting in each other's ways. And I think it's, it's like, 
I read an article from uh, Mike Prada the other day about LaMarcus. And what it really is, him taking more threes is him acknowledging the spot in the pecking order, mm. right? Because what's happened to the league now is the best players still take a lot of mid-range shots. The guys who hold the ball, your, James, your superstars, right? Mm-hmm. It's everybody else who spreads the floor for them who don't take as many mid-rangers. So LaMarcus, like, stepping back, but it re- like he's literally stepping back, not only in terms of where he is in the court, but with him and DeRozan. Okay, it's DeRozan's team. I'm playing off DeRozan. This can work, as opposed to kind of both those guys wanting the ball in the mid-range. Yeah, I think everyone expects LaMarcus to be Duncan-esque, not only because of their similar body types, maybe like some similarities in just like where they play physically on the court, but also Aldridge doesn't feel like an excitable type. Uh, But it seems over the course of his entire run in San Antonio, like he has been one to perhaps bristle at what exactly what you're talking about, perhaps not being the guy at the center of the uh, of the offense, the guy at the top of the pecking order. And it seemed like even this season, it took him some time to figure that out. And now that he's not doing that, it just seems like everything just works a little bit better. And like, as you mentioned, yeah, the bench thing was significant for them last season. No, when Davis Bertans was the star of the show. And I think that like the first half of the season, you definitely saw them struggling to try to fill that void, you know? Yeah. And it's funny, like talk about the Spurs doing the Spurs things. Then you watch Bertans in Washington and he's one of the most exciting players in the league. After like years in San Antonio coming off the bench, taking like two threes a game, like running a little offense. And it's like, man, there's when those guys leave San Antonio, somehow they become better. And for much we're talking about them, like if the Grizzlies make the playoffs, if the Pelicans make the playoffs, they'll they'll both lose to the Lakers. It would still be exciting to watch the Spurs crawl to the playoffs for another like four game or five game sweep in the first rounds. Like what a way to end this run. Just beat downs every year by the one seed. Yeah. I definitely like want to see the Pelicans make this eighth seed or the Grizzlies just in order to have that first round matchup. I, I really don't want to have a Spurs Lakers series, but uh, I don't know. It just seems like everything is starting to click there, uh, even though our guy Bertans is uh, playing in Siberia and, and just probably waiting for a reprieve uh, at the deadline to, to join a contending team. Uh, which brings us to our next question, Tarks. This one is one that we'll probably be talking about for the next couple of weeks here until the trade deadline, which is on February 6th. Uh, which contender will go all in at the deadline? Do you have a, a team that you're eyeing? It's just tough. It's tough to see really many trades out there this year. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like there's many teams who want to sell. I, I mean, who do you think? No, I agree with you. Uh, Bill has talked about this a lot, and there's just something with the way that like the entire uh, just... I guess, financial structure of a lot of uh, the franchises out there where it's almost like the cap sheets are organized almost too well where the best players make a ton of money and some of the other players uh, don't. And there are just so few in-between contracts, which are the ones that help make the math work. I think if you're looking at it, though, I think the teams that are most motivated to trade will find a way to do something. And so if I'm looking at this question, I'm looking at the teams who like need to. So one team that comes up are Isaac's Clippers, who haven't been doing particularly well of late to the point where they're starting to get questions about this. Uh, and Kawhi, the top headline on ESPN.com's news stack is, Kawhi Eclipse, have fun, don't rush title race, which uh, a little ironic considering that he's only there for about two seasons and pretty much hijacked that <laughs> franchise in order to specifically to win a title. 
Uh, Isaac, how are you feeling right now, by the way? Uh, we still have a good record, you know, beat the Cavs last night by a considerable margin, but it's the Cavs, and they were without Kevin Love, and Kawhi scored 43 points, and this team, Kawhi is good. Listen, Kawhi is good. <laughs> I've heard that, yeah. Yeah, he's a great basketball player, as, <laughs> as what, we all know. 43 last night? Yeah, 43, and uh, basically just like single-handedly built up a lead so insurmountable that, you know, he didn't, I don't think he played much of the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. but... Some nights you can rely on Kawhi, but some nights he's not going to play. And some nights Paul George is going to play. Some nights he's not going to play. Some nights Paul George isn't going to shoot well. And that's been a problem with the inconsistencies in the roster. It's not just the two stars. There have been pieces around them that have been in or out of the lineup. Mm-hmm. And the whole balance between playing Ivica Zubats and Montrezl Harrell has been really weird this season. Because mm-hmm. Zubats has, has taken a step up and... When should you play Zoo? When should you play Trez? When should you play them together? The roster has some questions that I didn't foresee Doc Rivers and the Clippers having early on in the season. So we'll see if they make a trade. I think they're looking to. I think they will. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe the Darren Collison thing will come through or the Andre Godala thing will come through. But we shouldn't really hang our hopes on that, I don't think. Yeah, Isaac, I think you make a good point about the center rotation. And that really feels to me as the big question about this team. Because hmm. I was thinking about it with Trez, right? He's, I looked at his numbers. He's only played in one playoff six games before. Yep. So if yeah. you're thinking this guy's going to go to the NBA Finals, he's going to have to play like 30 games in two months. Right. How much juice does he have? Like, what if he has to go up against like Steven Adams, Nikola Jokic, Anthony Davis, and then go play in the finals? Like, does he have enough gas in his tank to play that well, to play his style of play for that long? And he's just so small. Right. And I was looking at like the, the Zubach Harrell thing. My guess is they don't feel like they cannot play Harrell his minutes because Harrell's a free agent this summer, right? Yeah. And if they cut his minutes back, he's going to be pissed. Yeah. Trez plays every game like it's the finals, which you'd <laughs> expect to, to help them in a final series because he's just, I don't think he'll wilt from the, the moment or just from the spotlight. He didn't against the Warriors last year in the playoffs but at the same time you're right I, I, it does take a lot of pounding and he does do a lot for that team yeah I mean and just in an Anthony Davis series right do you really trust Montrez and Zubach or is it going to be Jermichael Green that to me <sighs> yeah. if I'm the Clippers that's the question over this whole season is Anthony Davis in the conference finals well you've talked about this doesn't it have to be Kawhi to guard Davis God I mean I don't know that's a lot to ask of Kawhi when he's hobbling around out there so what would what would it be theoretically? It would be Kawhi on Davis, AD and then Paul George. Paul George on LeBron. Yeah, which you know LeBron has some weight on George. He could definitely like throw his muscle around against them. I don't know. This is probably the matchup that will decide the entire NBA, to be honest. And which is why, even when I was dubious about the Lakers to start the season, the biggest question I had was who is going to guard AD in the playoffs. I don't know. It, it's a good one, and I do think that's something that the Clippers will probably look at at the trade deadline. I'd expect them, like Isaac, to do something. It just feels like they have this draft pick. It's not going to be worth their while to just pick, I don't know, what, 25th? Especially considering that their window, as I mentioned, is really these two years, and we'll see what happens after that. And if anything, like if you know that Andre Iguodala is going to go to, let's say, the Mavericks, wouldn't you just try to best their offer if only just to block him? I don't know. That's a good question. Yeah, now I think about it, I, I really do think the Clippers are going to make a move. Like, now that we've kind of broken it down a little bit. 
They just seem like they already went all in anyways. They have pieces to move if they need to. Let me throw this at you. This is a trade a, a friend of mine who works in the league was throwing out there, not based on any information, but just working the trade machine. So the Clippers need a center, perhaps, right? The 76ers happen to have an extra one now that they've leaned into Ben Simmons as their lord and savior. What if the Clippers traded for Joel Embiid? <laughs> what would be the trade? <laughs> So it would be Embiid for Trez, Shamit, Mo Harkless to make the money work, and let's just say their first round pick. That's less than good for Tobias Harris in the trade last year. Well, That's, that seems like a very low price that the Clippers would be paying for I think a the superstar would be happy center. To do that one. Well, this is before Trez becomes an all star center in the East, obviously. Uh, sure. Look, look, I think. <laughs> I think Montrez Harrell should win sixth man of the year, by the way. Like that's on, I really think he's having a phenomenal season, but he's no Joel Embiid. Come on. That's ridiculous. And giving them Shamit back and Mo Harkless, like I, that's really the talent disparity there in the assets is really uh it's tough. Unless you think, unless the Sixers are certain that Joel Embiid is such an injury risk that there's no way that he he's going to remain healthy for the playoffs. But I don't think that's the case at all. Yeah, I mean, they might trade and beat eventually, but that's that's not. Well, let me say this realistic. though: is that not a better team for Ben Simmons? Is Trez at center, Shaman on the wing, not a better team if you were going to lean in, into a team built around Ben? It absolutely is, but giving up on a talent as dominant and as great as Joel Embiid, it just doesn't seem to mathematically line up. Even though fit wise, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Obviously, Embiid is, what, a top 20 player at this point. Uh, considering his injuries, you probably knock him just a little bit. I don't know. I, I think this is probably what's going to happen to the Sixers eventually. Sharks Char- and I were actually discussing this yesterday. How are we going to keep talking about the Sixers <laughs> splitting up Ben yeah. and Embiid? But, I, th- I think we might have mentioned this at some point in the last two months. So. Uh, maybe, maybe. And we're going to mention it for the next two years. But if they are going to split them up, eventually, this is the discussion they're going to have to have internally because I don't think they're ever going to get fair value. I think Ben, definitely, his his like value on the market is going to fluctuate wildly depending on how a team sees him. And also, Joel, if you're in trade discussions, everyone's going to bring up the fact that he's just hurt every single year and the fact that they had to sign Al Horford specifically to back him up because they knew he wasn't going to be around so often. And in particular, he ran out of gas in the playoffs. So... Not the best value, perhaps, but I think in terms of fit, I think it makes a lot of sense. I actually have the Sixers down, though, as a team that could go all in at the deadline to my question to start off the segment. But I do feel like now is not the time that they're going to try to split up Joe and Ben. It makes a lot of sense to just, at at the very least, try to go with it one last time and, and see what they can do. What do you think, Charks, about bringing back Robert Covington into the mix here? I mean, I like Covington, but I don't think he really addresses their biggest needs. Like, they've got plenty of perimeter defense. Mm -hmm. They need guards who can create shots, run, pick, and roll. You know, maybe more replace the Jimmy Butler kind of role in the team. Obviously, you can't get a Jimmy Butler-type player, but more a guy like that than another guy who needs someone to create offense for him. Yeah, I agree. They need more of a creator. Uh, Josh Richardson does a little bit of it, but he probably is doing too much of it at this point. I think the problem is, I just don't know who that guy is on the market. Like A guy like Kyle Lowry makes a lot of sense for this team, right? Uh, But not only are the Raptors still in the thick of this race, if anything, I think they're above them 
uh, above the Sixers in the Eastern they Conference are, standings yeah. right now. But the money, again, he makes about like $34 million, and I don't know how the Sixers cobble together that amount of, uh, of salary in order to match it. It's just, it's going to be very difficult. And I do wonder if, if Rocco, a guy like everyone seems to like on that roster, and uh, they really have just been kind of a little disjointed since. I do wonder if you get him in there and maybe like at the very least, he just like uh, makes the, the vibe a little bit better. I don't know. It is kind of amazing. They handed out maybe half a trillion dollars in contracts over last year, and they have no guards who run pick and roll. I'm not even sure that's even possible, but they managed to do that. Because they did it all for centers. All these guys play center. That's the problem. It's 2019, or no, it's actually 2020, and they're still playing like three centers at once. It's it's mind-boggling, which is why I was so excited when Ben just took off in that first game against the Celtics. It just felt like a team that just could breathe finally. There was so much space and he was just like doing stuff that he doesn't normally do. And then the past couple of games, he hasn't been playing as well. But that first game was really exciting and I, I just want to see more of that. Um, are there any other teams you want to throw out here? Um, I think we covered the main ones. I want to talk about the Lakers. I have some like Lakers takes I've been thinking about. Okay. All right. We're going to talk about just that. But first, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. Today's episode of the Ringer NBA show group chat is brought to you by FanDuel. 2020 is finally here and the new year brings the best events in sports. NFL Conference Championship Sunday is coming up and the NBA is getting into full swing. If you're as excited as I am about the best sports month of the year, then you'll want to make sure you enjoy all the action on FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one online sportsbook for a reason. They've got all the bets you could want. They've got a great, easy-to-use app, new promotions every day, and once you win, they get you your cash fast. And if you've been holding out on trying FanDuel Sportsbook, then now's the time. Because right now, FanDuel Sportsbook is giving new users their first bet risk-free. That means you can place any bet within seven days of signing up, and FanDuel Sportsbook will refund up to 500 bucks in site credit if you don't win. Isaac, you've been eyeing a bet for tonight's slate of games, which is Wednesday. What do you got for me? Yes, so the Toronto Raptors are facing off against the Oklahoma City Thunder. They're at OKC. OKC is favored by one and a half points. I'm going to take the Thunder. I love their against the spread record here. It's 27 and 13. That's pretty staggering. Mm. And they're at home. They've been on a roll lately. Shea Gildas Alexander looks amazing. And the Raptors may be missing Marcus Gasol. He's listed to be probable to play tonight. We'll see how it goes, but it's risk-free. Isaac, I love that you always bring the data when we do these segments. You really <laughs> I'm, all come about them. I'm all about the stats. That's great. I appreciate that. When was the last time your bookie gave you a do-over? Didn't think so. To claim your risk-free first bet, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app from the iOS app store or visit fanduel.com slash Android and be sure to use the promo code RINGERMBA so they know we sent you. That's promo code RINGERMBA, R-I-N-G-E-R-N-B-A to get your first bet risk-free on FanDuel Sportsbook 21+, plus. present in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, or Indiana. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires 14 days after receipt. Terms and restrictions apply. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net or Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT.
All right, we're back. We're talking about the biggest questions at the midseason point. Uh, we talked about some teams who could maybe look at the trade deadline for some help, but let's talk about the teams who are most optimistic going forward. Sharks, the question is, which team will make the biggest second-half push? And Sharks, you think the Lakers are that team? I've been thinking about it, and I really think we're underestimating the impact of Davis to the five. That's kind of like the other shoe that hasn't dropped yet. Mm. They've been playing these big, slower lineups, and they're doing fine with them. And then if you think about it, if Davis moves to the five, the biggest beneficiary is Kyle Kuzma. Hmm. So, right, in a world, in this, like everyone's saying, okay, Kuzma doesn't fit with the Lakers. Well, yeah, because Davis at the four, LeBron's at the three. All of a sudden, Davis, Kuzma, LeBron. So those three guys at the numbers, they've only played 150 minutes this season together, which is not a lot of minutes, but they're plus 21 in those minutes. Hmm. It's pretty good. And I, yeah, and I think with Kuzma, Maybe he's overrated a little bit because he's in L.A., but he's actually a pretty good player. And the things that he does make sense with LeBron and Davis because Kuzma can score quickly without holding the ball, right? Mm-hmm. He's a great cutter. He's kind of a volume scorer, microwave guy, but he's six foot nine, And he can probably get you 20, 25 points without holding the ball. When you, when you have LeBron Davis, is great. Like Those three guys together are going to be a tough, tough out. Yeah, the- I think the question with Kuzma has always been more on the defensive end at that lineup because if you're spotting him at the three and you're playing him, let's assume it's Davis, LeBron, Kuzma, Danny Green, and let's just say Avery Bradley. But I think you'd go KCP there. So then you have mm. KCP and Green to defend at the wing at six foot six. See, that's interesting. Yeah, the fact that KCP is is kind of come around this season is is pretty significant because you do need my my question was going to be like who is that wing stopper like who guards Kawhi for instance and this is again the the flip side of who guards Anthony Davis for the Lakers is going to be how do you split your your wing defenders on Kawhi and Paul George so you're saying let's say Danny Green guards Paul George and then KCP on Kawhi (laughs) yeah and then I mean, I don't know. I feel like those matchups aren't great, but those are credible defenders, at least, with size. Please let KCP guard Kawhi. <laughs> I would love to see that. I mean, and then you can still put Davis on him if you have to. Yeah, my right? question with that is more just like, who is LeBron covering? Who is Kuzma covering? Because the Clippers, while they have been injured in the regular season, at full strength, you'd expect them to throw out a couple more guys that people are going to track, and all of a sudden, maybe... LeBron James is the one trying to like chase Landry Shaman around screens. You know, you don't want that. I do love, however, the fact that Davis wouldn't be one of the primary defenders on those guys because it does feel like he is at his best almost playing the Giannis type role of playing center field and kind of cleaning up things at the rim. Um, I don't know. I I think it's going to be fascinating. But so you don't think Kuzma, though, that the Lakers would be best trading him. I mean, like we talked about Kuzma for Bogdan last week. If you can get a trade like that, sure, but that's just not. I think the Kings shut that down really fast. But what if that's it, just not plausible? What if it was just like a veteran? Because that's kind of what I think they'll be up against. Whether or not they want Kuzma, a guy who theoretically has a ton of untapped potential, uh, especially on the offensive end, versus a veteran like let's say Robert Covington. Let's say it's coming. They find a way to make the math work. I don't. I don't have the trade machine in front of me, but I think they have enough in salary probably to figure out somehow. Uh, what if it was Covington for Kuzma? I mean, Covington, I can see the idea, but I'm really, I really do feel like Kuzma is being underrated right now in terms of 
if he can give you that third score, right? Because wow. if you have Covington, Green, KCP, who's your third score after LeBron and Davis? It's true. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, you would think uh, like a catch and shoot guy like Covington would be great off of LeBron. But you're right. Like, where is that creation coming from? They would need, you know, if they had Darren Collison as kind of their their backup point guard who could like shoulder that load in like the couple of minutes that LeBron wouldn't play in the playoffs, I would feel way more comfortable doing something like that. Don't forget Alex Caruso. <laughs> it's true. The Caruso. It, all, it always comes back to Caruso. It does. I, I'm actually a little surprised, Charts, though. Kuzma doesn't feel like your type of guy. I just talked myself into it. I, I think <laughs> okay. I watched that game where he had 35 against Oklahoma City. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, this guy can get buckets. He's freaking huge. He moves decently well. And in a lot of role, I've, I've always thought Kuzma kind of could be a Tobias Harris type. Mm. And like a guy like that has limitations, sure. But if he's your third scorer off LeBron and Davis, if you can get Tobias Harris level production, that's pretty valuable. Yeah. Yeah. The, the Oklahoma City game was interesting. I, I think I would just counter with the fact that you know, LeBron and Davis did not play there. And yeah. so Kuzma's entire career has been his ability to score without having to to share the ball with uh, other high-caliber kind of scorers. Um, I would go to the Eastern Conference if I'm looking at the team looking to make the biggest second-half push. I mentioned them earlier, uh, kind of ancillary to the 76ers discussion we were having, but it's the Raptors. They're finally getting a little bit more healthy. Siakam wasn't in there for uh, a long stretch of time. And yet they find themselves above the Pacers, above the Sixers in the fourth spot in the East. And I think at full strength, I think this team is still pretty good. I I don't know when Gasol will come back. But at the same time, I think if he isn't healthy, they could look to flip his contract and maybe make a push for this season. Everyone expects them considering how much of a runway they have toward the future and uh, that their contracts are aligned to perhaps make a push for Giannis in the summer of 2021, that they're more likely to go the other way and be a little bit more of a seller. And But I don't know. It just seems like, are they that far behind the Bucks? Are they that far behind the Sixers where at the very least, you don't try to uh, make a go of it? I don't, I don't know. I think I think a guy like, for instance, Danilo Gallinari, let's say he is the guy that you get in there, uh, play him a little bit more, uh, of the Gasol minutes, gets back some of that creation from your center position. And all of a sudden, this team looks pretty dangerous. Yeah, I mean, two through six in the East is really, really tight. So that's Boston, Miami, Toronto, Indiana, Philly. There's three and a half games separating them right now, all five teams. And yeah, Toronto, they haven't been healthy all season. Like, they've been winning games with Patrick McCaw, Terrence Davis, Chris Boucher, like, it's been pretty impressive how Nurse has manipulated his lineups to stay afloat, but he's going to get his top seven back at some point. And with how Siakam played at the start of the season, you've got two big-time scorers in Siakam and Lowry. You've got a ton of defense. You've got Van Vliet. You've got size up front. They're a pretty balanced team. I think they'll just go for it. Yeah, there's no reason. They might be kind of like right where they are, like Oklahoma City. Like You don't have to make a move either way because you can win now and be set up well in the future. Right. Yeah, I think they just have a lot going for them. Uh, they have the fourth uh, lowest strength of schedule uh, over the next uh, however many games they have left on their schedule. So I think they could burn through some teams and, and climb up into that 2-3 spot. And while I would still favor the Bucks, just considering how the Bucks have just lawnmowered through the entire uh, schedule in front of them, I don't know. I think if you have a shot, 
I, it reminds me of the East when LeBron used to dominate. If you have a shot, why not just try to make a push for it? If it, you're not sacrificing any long-term flexibility, it just uh, it makes a lot of sense to me. But uh, you mentioned the thunder there, Charks, and that brings us to perhaps my favorite question going forward, and one I, I know you're just chomping at the bit to talk about. Uh, this is one, uh, maybe a little recency bias behind this one, but uh, will Shea Gilders-Alexander be the best player of the 2018 draft? Oh, we should just call this whole pod recency bias. Just lean all, <laughs> lean all the way into it. I think that should, yeah, th- that's every pod that we do. True. <laughs> so, so Shea earlier this week uh, became the youngest ever to record a 20-rebound triple-double against the Minnesota Timberwolves. He has become, I would say, probably the player with the highest approval rating, especially amongst the, like, the blog scene. Uh, he's just like, he just does everything well. I think people expected him to perhaps like maybe bump up against Chris Paul, uh, having to share the load and play off of him a little bit. He hasn't. If anything, he's just looked even more versatile playing uh, in these three-guard lineups with uh, Paul and Schroeder. I don't know, man. I, I think this question probably goes with a no considering how good uh, some of the the players at the top of the 2018 draft were. Uh, and just for recap, that's guys like Luka Doncic, Jaron Jackson Jr., Trey Young, DeAndre Ayton was in that same draft. But he's definitely in the conversation, no? Yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, me and Isaac have been talking about SGA for like a year and a half now. Yeah, he's catch just, up, guys. Come on. You were early he's just on an him. amazing player. Yeah, you were early on him. You liked him when he was kind of uh, stacked behind a couple more like five-star prospects at Kentucky, no? It was kind of impressive, yeah. Like, SGA started the season at Kentucky coming off the bench. And then it just became gradually more and more obvious that he was their best player. And it's kind of been the same process in the NBA where he's so good he plays right away. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. He's six foot six. He defends three positions. He gets the rim at will. He's really, really smart player. He can finish. He can shoot. He's like, like you were talking about like those guys at the top of the draft. The one thing he has on Jaron, Luca, Trey, all those guys, he's the most well-rounded. There's no holes in his game. He's like 2021. He's a complete basketball player. And that's what you're seeing is you put him in any role he is, he succeeds because he can change his game, as we've been talking about. He can play on the ball or off the ball. He can guard one through three. He can run the offense himself. He can create his own shot. He can distribute too. He's just a really, really great basketball player. And I was, I've been saying, like, well, I think when it's all said and done, he's going to be Mr. Thunder, right? There was that whole mm. thing last week about Russ and Ket Perkins and all that. To me, he's going to become like the new... He, he already is, but he will be like the new face of that franchise. Wow. So you're already burying the Russell Westbrook generation. He is now... The, the it's fa- buried. Yeah. I, <laughs> no, I agree with you. Uh, there's just something about him. And I saw as soon as I saw him live for the first time, I think in a preseason game, there's just like a natural calm that he plays with. Yeah. There's just something like just super smooth about him and... He just like he doesn't really make a lot of mistakes. He's just like he plays a very mature style and like he just finds a way whatever lineup that he's in just finds a way to fill in in like the crevice and just like fill that void for you. And I think that's particularly advantageous for a Thunder team because they find themselves in this weird situation, right? Where Chris Paul is doing well and at the very least, you're going to be asking for more for Chris Paul in a trade. It's not going to be just a salary dump, you'd assume at this point. And if you wanted to continue on maybe one more season after this one, maybe even two seasons, play out the entire Chris Paul contract, 
Well, Shea doesn't really, there's no issue with that. He will not have a negative effect, uh, like his development, which is probably the priority of the franchise at this point, based on playing with Paul. And then once Paul is gone, all of a sudden you have this just bounty of draft picks, a bunch of young players, and you really aren't restricted to the types of players that you need to get around him because you can get anyone. You could just draft best talent available. And if you're looking back at what made the Thunder so great to begin with is that they did key on those guys. A guy like Russell Westbrook, uh, I think a lot of people had questions about what role he would fit coming out of UCLA. And James Harden, the prime example of this, a guy who uh, I don't think a lot of people knew what to do with him. He was just this left-handed shooting guard who was a little thick, but uh, all of a sudden they drafted him and they they made it work. And and I don't know, it just it seems like Shea is one of the better building blocks in, in perhaps the entire league to really start your franchise with. Yeah, and if you look at Oklahoma City, they've they've been a very aggressive front office for a while now, and it to me they've got I think it's like ten first round draft picks coming up or something. They're the team. The next time a legit superstar is on the market, that's the team that's going to go all in for them. Because you can off, they can give a team that that KG Nets trade, right? Because mm-hmm. all those picks are unprotected, so you can give someone that Nets trade and still have a good team now. So my guess would be, and like who can beat that offer, right? If you're rebuilding, we can offer you like five unprotected first round picks, not from ourselves, but from a different team that's probably going to be bad in a few years. I feel like they're they've got by far the biggest the war chest. So whenever a, a star is available next year or two. That's the team is the Thunder. I, I think we're all talking about the Thunder as, oh, maybe they can make a small move now for Robert Covington or whatever. No, this is a team, maybe it's next year or in two years. But my guess is they're going to push everything in for another superstar. Then you have Shea and that other player, and now you've got a possible championship team. Yeah, I mean, they did it with Paul George, right? No one expected them yeah, to exactly. really throw their name in there and, and try that out. And it worked for a time. And you wonder if Russell Westbrook was a little bit younger, was a little bit closer to Shea's age, if Paul George looks around and doesn't say, hey, this is actually the best place for me. Uh, you wonder, I don't think Paul left because of Oklahoma City. It seemed more like that team had probably tapped out in his potential. Like he was an MVP candidate and they still couldn't uh, get out of the first round. And so, yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I also look at some of the teams that could have drafted Shea and I wonder like, what the hell were they thinking? Uh, now it makes sense for a team like the Mavs. They went and got Luca, right? And the Hawks—they probably don't feel bad about having Trey Young instead of Shea, even though I, I would lean Shea if we're looking long term. But like the Knicks drafted Kevin Knox right before Shea. Uh, the Hornets drafted Miles Bridges right before Shea. Yeah, I think they took him and they traded because they knew the Clippers <laughs> had locked in on Shea. They traded back or something. That's right. That's that's bad. But. Looking at that entire draft class, Sharks, like how would you rank perhaps your five players going forward? Like, w- what is your top five from that draft? I'd probably go. I mean, looking at that draft, it looks like a generational draft now in kind terms of, of the way it's going to shape the whole league. I would say Luca one, Jaron two, Shea three, Trey four, probably. I think then you have a big drop up after that. Then you can kind of go in a million different directions. But those four guys that I think separated themselves. And the story with Shea was that it's pretty unusual what happened. So I did a story on him in Summer League last year when he was with the Clippers. And we kind of talked about it. And he told me that he shut himself down. So the Clippers talked to him right after the lottery and said, you're going to be our guy. I was just kind of funny now looking back on it. 
They're like, you're our guy. You're the face of the franchise going forward. And he didn't work out with anybody for like the entire time. He didn't talk to the media. He didn't do any stories, any workouts. Because he was, him and the Clippers were locked in the whole time as like a promise. And it's one of those things because he wasn't kind of getting a lot of hype during the season. He just kind of fell through the cracks, right? Like the Cavs worked out um, Colin Sexton that year. And it really impressed Gilbert in that workout. And they just went with it. But SJ wasn't even on their radar, really, because he's not working out with anybody. He's not in the pre-draft circuit. Wasn't Shea in Lee Jenkins's like original letter announcing his his like employment with the Clippers? Didn't he like? <laughs> Was he? Didn't he do the the LeBron thing of like forgetting uh, some of their like Jerome Robinson? But he's like, yeah, Shea can't wait to, to be in this <laughs> franchise and and get behind Shea Gilders Alexander. Yeah, I mean, he learned about how the NBA business really works, right? Yeah, you know. it, it was written. Lee Jenkins wrote it, and and now it's come to fruition just for a completely different franchise that he doesn't work for. All right, Sharks, we're going to say goodbye to our friend Jonathan Sharks, but we're going to bring in Rob Mahoney uh, and talk a little bit about the Milwaukee Bucks, the best team in the NBA. All right, we're back. We said goodbye to Sharks, but one of his Texan brethren making what I believe is his first uh, appearance on the Ringer NBA show. It is staff writer Rob Mahoney. What's up, buddy? I mean, it's a ringer rule. You can only swap out one Texan for another. So we got, we got to keep it to code. <laughs> this is true. Uh, Rob is obviously not only one of my favorite writers, but he has a, a lot of quivers in his... What do you put your quivers in? Your, your errors in your quiver? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I got that backwards. So that's great. Uh, but no, I was going to say, he's not only just a thoughtful writer, but I was thinking about this today. I think you're one of the few people who, when they had their blog career, you probably aren't as embarrassed about the blog names that you had <laughs> as other other people. Because I used to write for some, and it was just like the most outrageous stuff. Like, uh, I don't know. Uh, mine was the Yukon blog. But I remember at one point, uh, I wanted to name it the five-year plan uh, because Jim Calhoun won a title every five years. And this was also like a subtle, like communist joke. <laughs> um, All blog names are better as like subtle, subtle nods to some kind of governmental structure. <laughs> right. But yours were, were reasonable. It was what? The two-man game? Yeah, and- the two-man game, which doesn't quite make sense as a blog about the Dallas Mavericks, but you work with what you got, I guess. You know, your scope was much broader, you know? <laughs> we'll go with that. There was another one. It Was it Upside and Motor? Yeah, Upside and Motor was my debut blog. I think the first thing I ever wrote was a horrid misunderstanding of how bird rights work in reference to the <laughs> Portland Trailblazers not being able to keep together their powerhouse core of like Brandon Roy, LaMarcus Aldridge, Greg Oden, etc. So the content of all those may not have aged particularly gracefully, but at least the names have, have hung around. That's all that matters. Nobody actually reads the content. They just remember the name of, uh, of, of the album, you know? Um, all right, so so Rob is going to write for tomorrow on the Ringer uh, about the Milwaukee Bucks, specifically about how the Bucks perhaps are historically good, and yet it does feel like as we kind of size up the race here, I don't know if we're really giving them as much due as as like we probably should in terms of the championship race. We and last segment with Sharks was probably a prime example of this where. Uh, we're talking about how the Clippers are going to match up with the Lakers and vice versa and how that could determine the NBA title this season. But quietly, surprisingly quietly, the Bucks are flirting with a 70-win season. 
Uh, Rob, maybe take us through just a little bit of what you're seeing in the Bucks that perhaps we're missing in what has been just a pretty significant uh, first half of the season for them. Well, I think there's kind of two questions wrapped up in this, right? Where there's question one, are the Bucks actually the best team in the league? I think there are a lot of statistical indicators that would say so, uh, but public perception hasn't quite gone in that way yet. And so then question two is, if they are the best team in the league, why aren't they treated as such? Why don't we treat them in the way that we treat some of these other great teams? Even you know teams outside of the Lakers and Clippers, these kind of like huge markets that have uh, a certain kind of appeal. I think Milwaukee is just in a different place in terms of NBA fandom. But even when you compare them to other kind of you know fun, competitive, smaller market teams over the years, I would argue the Bucks aren't even quite getting as much attention as those teams. And so there's kind of a perception issue, and then there's a quality issue that you kind of need to, to suss through both. So I don't know which way is is more interesting for you to go through first. Well, yeah, let's talk about whether or not they are really good, which mm. statistically they have a pretty good argument. Uh, they're currently 36 and 6, which is best in the league. Uh, 538 projects them out for 64 wins, which isn't 70, but is still pretty damn good. Uh, they're third on offense, first on defense, first in net rating. Uh, and we had them in our tiers earlier this week uh, on the website. We had them pretty definitively as a favorite. I don't know. Is there really anything to say negatively about how they've been playing thus far? Just based on the body of work, perhaps not looking too far ahead at the playoffs, which I think is a pretty significant part of that second discussion you mentioned, that we could, is there anything about what they've done thus far that we, we can really be dubious about them? That's where it gets tricky because I think it's kind of unimpeachable. I mean, you mentioned just the <laughs> right. record alone. If you look at their point differential, which, you know, historically speaking, is one of the greatest indicators for for playoff success in terms of you know how not only how are you faring against really good teams but are you able to blow out the teams you should blow out are you able to you know to roll in to uh you know to Madison Square Garden and blow out the Knicks and have Giannis you know have a, a quick work on an early night because uh, he doesn't have to play the fourth quarter like those things matter historically speaking in terms of how good can your team ultimately be and kind of where where the signal and the noise uh, differ in terms of a you know regular season so. I think you could look at that team and say, oh, maybe they don't have the secondary star power. Maybe you're a little skeptical because you're you know, huge on, on Malcolm Brogdon and what he meant for that team. He's obviously not there anymore. Uh, you could look down the roster and say, you don't like this role player or that role player. Maybe you're, you're a little confused as to why Brooke Lopez isn't hitting threes anymore. But there are all these kind of like micro indicators versus everything in the big picture sense says this is the best team in the league. I don't know why we would be resistant to that idea. Yeah, and they've definitely past some of the earlier tests that I think a lot of people wanted to throw in front of them. Uh, they dealt with injuries pretty early on. Chris Middleton missed a couple of games. Eric Bledsoe missed a few, yet they did not slow down. As you mentioned, uh, Malcolm Brogdon, I think a lot of people expected them to take a step back. I, to be honest, I think I did as well, just because it seemed like they were prioritizing the long term. Perhaps Brogdon, uh, because of the injury issues he had in the past, maybe it was better to get away from him now and then perhaps divert the money that they had available to other sorts of players. That really hasn't been as much of an issue. Guys like Dante DiVincenzo all of a sudden are playing a little bit better. Uh, you add a Kyle Korver here. You add a Robin Lopez, another Lopez uh, there. And all of a sudden, they're just as good as they were last year. I think it kind of brings us to our second question with them. And I think this is the one that involves a lot more kind of studying uh, I have a couple theories on why they aren't getting their due. Uh, I actually have six listed here, but I could probably go into more. Let's start from the top, though. And I think this is the most interesting one to talk about. 
the Bucks are boring. I think because they just don't get into the drama and perhaps because there isn't, they're a small market team and they don't have a lot of people trying to stir up drama with their impending free agent Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, who can hit free agency in 2021, but this summer is when you expect him to get that, ex- that giant extension offer that the Bucks can throw at him. That really hasn't been a discussion point. Perhaps they've been too good. Perhaps Giannis just found a way to shut down the media. But like, there really isn't much to talk about but their excellence. And quite frankly, excellence is kind of boring, no? No, I think it definitely can be. I think the counterpoint is that I, don't, I haven't found this season overall to be very dramatic. You know, if you look at, you know, again, not to just keep comparing them to the Lakers, because I think there's a lot of reasons why that's an apples to oranges thing. But other than like Kyle Kuzma's trainer, have the Lakers really had <laughs> that much going on in terms of like a, like a, from, as from a soap opera standpoint? You know, obviously both teams are really great. I think on the court, there's a lot to be excited about either product. But around the league, you look and it's like, okay, you know, Al Horford and Brett Brown saying, you know, kind of implying that Ben Simmons should shoot more or, you know, this player or that player maybe getting into it a little bit. But it's it's been kind of a drama-free season overall, I feel like. Yeah, and LeBron made quick work of that trainer. He's probably like sleeping <laughs> with the fishes right now because I haven't heard a word from him ever since then. Uh, Kyle Kuzma, in fact, sent out one of... Uh, in, in a long lineage of, of LeBron teammates, sent out a, a vague uh, tweet in which we all kind of read into, and that didn't really become a thing. You're right. It just doesn't seem like there's much to really discuss on the the off-the-court part of the game this year. Part of it is probably because there's only been, what, one trade since Russell Westbrook was traded in July? Uh, And as everyone's been talking about recently, it just doesn't feel like the league is set up to make a lot of trades ahead of this deadline. And so the Bucks kind of fit. They're kind of symbolic of that. Right. They're just they're kind of just going about their business. They're being really good, but there really isn't much to talk about unless you really want to get into the nuances of like, uh, I don't know, Giannis being able to shoot off the catch versus off the dribble. Yeah, and I think the kind of moves that they could potentially make, like if you look last year, trading for Nikola Mirotic at the trade deadline, there it came out of nowhere. It was completely unexpected. It was pick-based more so than player-based. It was based on you know trying to get a little bit more depth, trying to address a need more so than, oh, we have this underused player on our team or this disgruntled asset and we need to move them on. And so I think the Bucs are in a position to do that again. You know, we talked about Brogdon. They get back picks in that deal. They have some maneuverability if they want to try to add a piece, which I think they are, they're probably in a good position to do depending on how the market shakes out. And so you can't talk about that. You can't, you know, you're, you're not working the trade machine in quite the same way. And, you know, there maybe is a bigger conversation here as to whether it's a problem that the NBA only feels really alive when we're talking about players moving from one place to another. Uh, but what Milwaukee has built and this, the kind of stability of the core that they have, I think is good enough to warrant deeper consideration and more conversation than it has. And I mean, maybe they are boring in the sense that, again, Giannis is like trying to quiet down as much of that free agency talk as he can. I think he's doing a pretty good job so far. Uh, but it does leave them in a, in a weird place in terms of the discourse. Yeah, they play a very specific style of basketball. And while it's led to results, clearly, uh, it does make it, it makes you wonder like what they really need to make this team significantly better. Uh, you know, all of the you just need shooters around Giannis and they've managed to just create a deep bench of them, even getting Brooke Lopez when uh, a lot of people in the league, it seemed like it turned the opposite way and expected Brooke to perhaps just kind of fade into obscurity. Uh, but that brings me to my next point. Uh, and this 
specifically addresses our guy, Chris Middleton. How dare you, preemptively. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I I mean, this also is kind of ancillary to our discussion about boring, because I do think that they have, among the favorites, the worst number two. And I do wonder if we're looking ahead a bit, if we're trying to project how they'll do against some of the best teams in the league in the playoffs, because that's really the only question they have going forward. We, it doesn't ultimately become how confident we are in Chris Middleton, no? No. I, well, I mean, the Chris Middleton of it all is, I mean, it's certainly not a new problem to arise in terms of the conversation around the team. I think a lot of people have worried about this, especially when you're looking at trying to keep Giannis and trying to, you know, you have a lot of salary that's now locked into place. Is this the kind of second best player who's good enough to keep him around and make him wanting, want to come back and, and contend with this kind of group? I think it's it's kind of a weird query to pose a couple months or you know less than a year after like Kyle Lowry is the second best player on a title team right or Marcus Gasol or however you want to parse you know the Toronto Raptors I think we've reached a point and certainly when you look across the landscape there aren't a lot of kind of looming giants there's no you know Kevin Durant and Steph and the Warriors that's on the horizon here there's a lot of teams that are kind of trying to make it and they're trying to figure themselves out and make sure that they have you know all all of their T's crossed and their I's dotted and I think the Bucks are in that group in terms of, and, and maybe better position than most, in the sense that they have the continuity. They kind of know who they are. That ha- they have that security of, of identity, and maybe that's where, you know, I was certainly in agreement with you in terms of thinking that without Brogdon, they would have to, you know, figure some things out. They'd have to do some things differently. Maybe they would take a step back. But I think maybe we underestimated the ability of that team and that group and what they had built to kind of just plug guys in and play and play within the flow and do what they can. And it can be tricky when you know, as you alluded to, when you have kind of Giannis surrounded by shooters, or if you want to look at Houston, James Harden surrounded by shooters, how do you really make that team better from a personnel standpoint? I mean, I guess you could get better shooters. You could get, you know, guys <laughs> right. who are slightly more dynamic playmakers or a better defender here or there, but it's a more complicated picture in terms of how to improve teams like that. And I think what Middleton gives you is a little bit of everything in a way that is such a pressure release. And He's not a, a particularly sexy player by any means. I mean, he, the most daring he gets is like a reverse layup. I think he would Ooh, cop to that himself. I'm I getting mean, verklempt I'm, over here, Rob. <laughs> pull out the fainting couch, everybody. <laughs> be, be safe out there. But uh, I mean, it, it, again, this is where these two conversations kind of overlap, where there's the question of, is Chris Middleton fun to watch for you know the Instagram NBA fan? And is Chris Middleton good enough to help the Bucks win in the playoffs when historically has shown up in some of the biggest series they've played. I mean, he's had, you know, in this most recent run, had a, had a tough time against the Raptors at points. But I think overall, when you look at his history, is a guy who shows up for those kinds of series. You're just taking shots at the millennial fans. I, I see you. <laughs> no, I, I think it's a, a great point. And I also think it bleeds down from Middleton into Eric Bledsoe. Uh, I think Bledsoe's also the type of guy where <sighs> he fits what they need. And in the regular season, it seems like uh, he goes about his business and and just it, it isn't a problem. But this brings me to my next question, and this is it has to do with Bledsoe as well. My third theory in this long sh- manifesto that I've created, perhaps that we have PTSD from last year's playoffs. So not only did our guy Eric Bledsoe just completely not show up uh, and no longer has the Brogdon insurance in order to kind of uh, perhaps like paper over some of his mistakes, we also have last year's Eastern Conference Finals uh, in which the Raptors, despite going down two games to start with, completely blew the Bucks out of the playoffs over the next four games. Kawhi Leonard famously switches on to Giannis, and all of a sudden, 
that wall builds up and Giannis can't figure it out. And I think considering that they didn't change much about who they are or what they do, I think you kind of, I think it's fair to ask if they're not going to run into a similar issue again in this year's postseason. No, it's a totally fair question. And really, enough cannot be said about how absolutely horrible Eric Bledsoe was in that series. And, <laughs> right. and really, I think has been, you know, generally speaking, for the Bucks in the playoffs. Like, he's he's been a disaster. And like that, some of that has to change. He doesn't have to be great, but they need him to be passable in a way that he really hasn't been yet. And that's one area where playing in Milwaukee and all, all these problems we're talking about in terms of why the Bucks don't get more love or more attention, I think he gets a lot of cover in that conversation. Because if Eric Bledsoe were LeBron's teammate, uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure he would be allowed in many public spaces in the city <laughs> that he that he lived in. But I, I am glad you bring up that that series because we do this thing when, you know, after a series is decided, after a playoff run, we treat everything with a degree of finality and certainty and, and paint it with like a, a single impression in a way that isn't exactly representative of what happened. And I think in that series, the Bucks are up 2-0 in that series. Game three goes to double overtime in order for the Raptors to win. If Milwaukee wins that game, that series is effectively over. That's one shot. That's, you know, one free throw. And again, you know, we can get into Giannis's free throw struggles uh, a little bit in this podcast as well. There's there's certainly some, some meat to pull up there in terms of things he could do better. Giannis also fouls out of that game. Mm-hmm. And so you have a game really with the series on the ropes that the Raptors have to win and do. And one shot, one trifle could change that and effectively change history. Then you're talking about the, the Bucks going to the finals and, and, you know, who knows what happens from there. But even when you look at the rest of that series, you know, game four, Raptors win, no contest. There's not a lot to talk about there. Basically, all, all the other games that the Bucks lost in that series are by six points or so. You're know, mm-hmm. talking about some single-digit games. You're talking about a couple shots. You're talking about you know a couple of possessions where Giannis was out of control or where the Bucs couldn't quite get their stuff together in time to you know, run a more cogent offense because the Raptors had them uh, a little bit confounded. And so... I think there's this narrative that, you know, you put Kawhi on Giannis and everything changes in that series. And to a degree, it does. But then you look overall and Giannis shot basically the same percentage from the field that Kawhi did. Kawhi produces in different ways and certainly came up with the bigger shots in that series. But I, I'm I'm just not convinced that the, the Bucks or that Giannis really struggled in that series quite as much as our memories would lead us to believe. Yeah, it's tough because on the one hand, you have five months just to pour over this final result, right? I think it's just only human to look back at our most recent experience with this team and just expect that to be the only uh, truth about them going forward. I think what also happened with them is the fact that they are more of a veteran team. I think it probably leads us to believe they are more of a, a fixed commodity than they perhaps they, they actually are. I look at the Celtics the year before that, and all of a sudden they make do without Kyrie Irving. You have Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and all these young guys, and you assume based purely on their age and their experience level that they have more of a ceiling. Well, actually it flipped the other way, and it turned out that they just weren't able to tap into that, at least for another season. I think the Bucks, because they've been able to assemble a pretty veteran team around Giannis, I wonder if we think that was the absolute maximum of what stretch Brooke Lopez can give them. Uh, Chris Middleton, as we mentioned, we just don't expect much for him. So like, what more could we get from him? Eric Bledsoe has been rough in the playoffs in the past, and so you expect that to continue. And so I do wonder how much we've kind of just, uh, I don't know, perhaps just manufactured this uh, this vision of the Bucks that doesn't perhaps exist. I mean, I think some of those concerns are pretty fair. You know, with Brooke, with Bledsoe, with Middleton, with some of the pieces 
that are that are kind of building this team, you could definitely say, okay, this was the best that they had played in the regular season and they weren't able to to hold that up in the playoffs. Therefore, I don't trust the Bucs in this setting. I think what that misses is that Giannis is 25 years old. Mm-hmm. And w- with that, you know, I think we've seen him not only come this season better, but you're seeing kind of the the mechanics work in terms of the cerebral parts of the game, in terms of the way he reads certain situations, in terms of his footwork and the way he maneuvers around certain problems. I think fundamentally when you talk about Giannis in the playoffs and you're thinking about guys like Kawhi, the guys that could potentially guard him, there are really only maybe two players in the league who could do it pretty effectively. And Kawhi is one of them and is no longer in his conference. I think Joel Embiid is actually the other one. Mm. And we saw some success in the Christmas Day game uh, mm-hmm. where the Sixers did that, you know, really kind of... And, you know, the Sixers, I think, have two other guys in Horford and Ben Simmons who can kind of credibly fill minutes against Giannis, who, may, you know, maybe you wouldn't want as a first option for a variety of reasons. But Embiid is kind of the other guy. And so when you're talking about a player who really there are only two antidotes for in the entire league... And every other team is trying to do what the Raptors did. They're trying to do what worked against Giannis in the playoffs. They're trying to lay back off him. They're trying to guard him with bigs. They're trying to show him a wall at the rim. And he just dunks on everybody. Yeah. Uh, so, so at some point, you have to reckon with the idea that the Giannis we saw in that series isn't necessarily the Giannis we're going to see going forward. And that all the players, you know, whether it's Bledsoe or Middleton or, or Brooke Lopez not hitting enough shots, or if you want to look on the other side, like I think it comes down to how much are you really willing to stake on a really great regular season team and a team that is great by every other indicator losing a couple games by six points yeah. and, and how much you're really willing to stake on like a couple of Fred Van Vliet three-pointers in that <laughs> series really dictating how we feel about one of the best players in the league and the teams he, team he plays for. Yeah, Rob, I have some bad news about Joel Embiid. I actually traded him to the Clippers in the previous segment. <laughs> uh, so they're not going to face him until they get to the finals. Well, I appreciate you not leading with that. I mean, you're really <laughs> blindsiding me here. No, but I think it's a good point. I, I look at the East, though, and I do wonder if the Bucks are better off based on the status of, of, the, of their conference and like what they'll have to get through in the playoffs, or they're worse off. And So you look at the first-round series, it could be against the Magic, against a team like the Nets with Kyrie. You expect them to win that pretty handedly. But then all of a sudden, I don't know, maybe they get the heat in the second round. Maybe it's the Raptors again, even though they don't have Kawhi, still a formidable team. The Pacers were expecting to take a pretty significant leap in the second half once they get back Victor Oladipo. And then, yeah, and then in the Eastern Conference Finals, you have another team. And so on the one hand, I don't think there's a team that could perhaps give them as much of a trouble as the Raptors did last year. But I do think the East being as top-heavy as it is now... I do wonder if, if all of a sudden they get to more seven-game series, maybe that has a trickle-down effect into in like how successful they are getting out of the East yet again. I think it definitely could play a part, especially if you're comparing them to you know someone in the West, whether it's the Clippers, the Lakers, whoever you like to come out of the conference and saying, you know, who's going to have the tougher road to the finals and what, what could that ultimately mean for a final series in terms of the attrition of that? I just don't see any of these teams, you know, based on the evidence we have right now, and these teams as currently constructed, I don't see any of them matching up with the Bucs, really. Yeah. I mean, the Sixers can't win a game on the road, which strikes me as kind of a problem in a series where you're not going to have home court advantage. <laughs> they have all these, you know, Joel Embiid's health is obviously always a question. There's a lot of questions of fit. And I think they they did some things very effectively in the one game that they played against the Bucs so far. But again, it's not about the one game. It's about who has the capacity to respond, which team has a little bit more flexibility in terms of, you know, how can they they tweak their approach to get through a series? And that's one area where Mike Budenholzer has historically not done particularly well. Mm-hmm. 
But given this roster, given where Giannis is in his career, I think there's some brute forcing that can be done here. And, you know, just as a as the most unstoppable player in the league going to the rim and what he can do for your team, even if you put Embiid and Horford and Simmons in front of him, if you space him the right way, I think that's one area where we've seen Milwaukee do a little bit better already is, you know, clearing out one side more effectively, allowing Giannis to really drive at an angle to get by some guys where you're not able to cheat off of Eric Bledsoe quite so much in a way that's going to impact Giannis's drive. I think there's there's a lot of these kind of uh, little elements at the Bucks, little quirks that they're they're doing in terms of their offense to to relieve some of that pressure on Giannis. But ultimately, those guys are going to have to make shots. They're going to have to make plays. Eric Bledsoe is going to have to do better than nothing uh, in a seven-game series against some of these teams. I just don't see them measuring up. And, and a lot of that comes down to something we haven't talked about much yet, which is that Milwaukee is one of the best defensive teams in the league, bar none. And no matter what you may think about where they are offensively or how awkward it may look at times, I think they're going to make their opponents look just as awkward or just as forced or just as rushed, uh, even more so than they are. Right. Uh, everything has been going well, but I do want to circle back to what you were talking about with Giannis. Yes, everything that they've done has managed to feature the MVP perhaps even better than they did the first time around. But my next theory in this long list uh, is that we are not 100% sold on Giannis, uh, and which sounds crazy considering that, yes, he is the MVP uh, and he is likely to win yet another one. His numbers are better than last year, even though he's playing fewer minutes. Uh, Everything is going well except for the shooting. So, yes, Giannis is now shooting three-pointers. He is shooting 33% from three-point line, and which is not great, but it's enough considering everything else he does and just having to think about Giannis with a three-pointer probably just has a trickle-down effect that impacts like just so many more things on on the Bucs' offense. But the one thing I've been worrying about is that free-throw percentage. And as we've gone on this season... It's gotten particularly bad. He's currently at 62%. And so I do wonder if all of a sudden we're in a playoff series and the three-pointer isn't going down or at least teams are going to force him to make those shots and they're going to wall up yet again, wait for those drives from Giannis. And worst case, they're going to try to send him to the line. And then all of a sudden we're in perhaps Shaq 2.0 zone uh, where Giannis isn't able to make those free throws. And as you mentioned with the Raptors series, it was a couple of shots that made a difference. Well, perhaps they're not Fred Van Vliet three-pointers. They're actually Giannis free throws. Yeah, I mean, the, the free throw stuff with Giannis is real and extremely weird. Just in terms of a player who is, you know, looking over the course of his career, has been you know pretty consistently within a range in the mid to high 70s and then all of a sudden in kind of LeBron-like fashion has just cratered in a season free throw shooting in a way that no one could have anticipated that is kind of inexplicable and that I agree in, in a playoff setting is definitely something you have to think about especially you know if you look not to, to psychoanalyze Giannis too much but as a guy who is just kind of an all-out like one of his his prime virtues as a player is his effort is his drive is the fact that like he he does play extremely hard and he does seem to really to really want this for Milwaukee and the Bucks to play in a way that can be irrepressible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think when when you are that kind of player who's who's that dedicated to like every possession and going all out all the time, the idea that you all of a sudden have to slow down, go to the free throw line, clear your head completely, and hit two free throws, you could see you can imagine a scenario in a playoff setting where he goes over two in a crucial situation. And it really comes back to haunt him. And, you know, I'm sure that's, you know, the lead and a feature that's written on Giannis for the next season or whatever about how he, you know, dedicated his life to making better, you know, making his free throws more consistently. 
But in the moment, that is something the Bucks have to worry about. And I, I'm not sure what the solution to that is because Giannis is going to take a lot of contact between here and potentially June. And there's no way, there's really no way to go through that but to, to at least, you know, hit a passable percentage of those shots. Right. You'd expect them to keep working on it. But, I mean, if they're not going to go for 70 wins, if they're not going to make a conscious decision uh, to really push for that before the playoffs, you expect Giannis perhaps to play even fewer minutes, even fewer games. Uh, which means fewer opportunities, perhaps, like, just work through this. If it is a mental issue, we don't know. Uh, perhaps it's just, if anything, the lack of reps might actually be worse for him. Um, and just to kind of underline our point here, and not just to kind of uh, ding Giannis, uh, he is the 11th player to take at least 18 field goals, but shoot under 62% from the free throw line uh, ever. That's that's in the basketball reference database. And he's the only one since Shaq and Antoine Walker believe it or not, uh, in 2002-03 to do so. So it is worrisome, but he does so much else that's great that uh, perhaps it's just a blip and, and he'll, it's a sample size issue and all of a sudden the playoffs will be better. Uh, but I want to get to my last point here, which is actually just a dual point, which it doesn't actually have anything to do with Giannis or the Bucks or Budenholz or anything else that we've seen already. In fact, the biggest thing against the Bucks is we've never seen them win the East or a title thus far. And as we've seen, until it happens, I think a lot of people aren't willing to believe it. Uh, you're starting to hear some kind of comparisons between the Bucks and the Warriors. And this is something that I was actually kind of, uh, was a pet project of mine last year too. It does feel like when the next wave happens, we don't really realize it until the title comes and there's confirmation that it is a thing. The Warriors obviously blew through uh, the competition in 2014-15 when we were looking for that next team. But there were still, I, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, just shreds of doubt about whether or not it would work. They were a jump shooting team and everything we heard about jump shooting teams is at least from like the Shacks and kind of some of the uh, more dunderheaded analysis is just like it, that wasn't going to work in the playoffs. And then all of a sudden it did and it worked like gangbusters. And now here we are in this current environment. I do wonder if there's going to continue to be these shreds of doubts. There's going to be doubts about Giannis, about the Bucks in the playoffs until we actually see it. And if anything, like this conversation just is moot because we just need them to prove it for certain people to give them the respect that they need. Well, thanks for putting in the perspective that everything we do here is ultimately meaningless <laughs> and the universe is a cold, dark place. That's what I'm here for. That's <laughs> editing, my friend. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I do think that, I mean, more broadly, human beings are, are kind of historically very slow, embarrassingly slow in some cases on the uptake. I mean, our, our planet is on fire and we're still talking about whether global warming is real. <laughs> we're also uh, talking about the bucks amid that as well. <laughs> it's true. Uh, I mean, and so... When you bring that back to the Bucks or the Warriors or anything new that's happening, I think the Warriors represented something different in terms of a, a shift in a style of play, a style of philosophy that people hadn't quite come around on yet, which is, is its own thing. With the Bucks, I think you're talking about the credibility of a team collectively and of a superstar. And it's interesting that we don't have these conversations around you know, the Clippers or the Lakers. Again, the other two you know, presumable favorites, which is why I keep bringing them up this season because they have Kawhi and because they have LeBron, because those two stars have a championship pedigree, even though those teams don't, you know, the idea that, you know, we don't have this incredible faith in Anthony Davis. It's that he's LeBron's teammate and therefore they're kind of lumped together. And so the Lakers are therefore more credible than the Bucks. 
uh, in one particular line of argument. I just don't really understand that, again, in a league where you look around and there are no, there are no established powers here. Mm-hmm. Everyone went through some kind of upheaval or ended their last season you know, in, in a way that they, they wouldn't have liked to. And so they're all kind of working from the same place. I think it would be it would be a different conversation if there were a better established powerhouse, you know, not even dynastic, but you know, a credible contender who's been there for a couple of years in this mix. But all these teams seem to be kind of in the same place to me. And, and if you're if you're starting from that kind of even ground, then I'm going with the team that is blowing the doors off of everybody to the point that Giannis only has to play about 20 minutes against some of these teams. Yeah, I, I think the thing working against them as well is that even though the Lakers and the Clippers haven't done it yet with this current uh, rosters that they have, they have players who have. Like, they have yeah. two of the most bankable stars in Kawhi and, and LeBron James. And so if we're searching for some sort of answers, you're naturally going to gravitate toward the guy who's been the best player in the league for about a decade now and the guy who is uh, assumedly or ostensibly the one who's kind of taking his place, at least uh, in the postseason. And so... Maybe that has to work against them, but I don't know because I think the big question, just to wrap it up here, as we sit now in, what is it, January 15th, and we're talking about the Bucks perhaps being a 70-win team or you know just how historically great they are, if you were to pick a title winner today, would it be the Bucks? I would pick the Bucks. Wow. I think they are, I think coming out of the East, if you compare them to the field, they're the prohibitive favorite. I mean, all those other teams... Uh, you know, they're again the top tier of the East. I think is much better than we expected, at least in terms of you know the Heat working into that conversation. The Pacers, as you mentioned, with Oladipo, could get into that group. The Celtics being ultimately more stout than they looked on paper. You know, after losing Al Horford, particularly, and, and what they've been able to do with their defense. There's a lot of good teams in the East. I just don't think any of them are, are really close to the Bucks. And so then when you when you you know compare that across the Western Conference, where there's going to be kind of a bloodbath in terms of, you know, a lot of teams that could work into that contending conversation, you know, if you're particularly high on the Rockets or the Nuggets or the Jazz or whoever you like, obviously the Clippers and the Lakers have a a different place in that conversation currently, uh, but that conversation could get more complex as the season goes on. I just see the Bucks getting to the finals a bit more easily than some of those teams. And when you ultimately get there, I, I trust their defense a lot. And I think that's where, you know, we can talk about the Giannis stuff all day. The fact that they will take away you know, take away the rim. You know, the Bucks are the best team in the league in terms of keeping opponents away from the restricted area, and they force the lowest percentage when you get there. And some of that's just the way that their defense is built and tilts. It kind of, you know, if we're if we're talking about jump shooting teams, they kind of force every opponent to be a jump shooting team. They're going to leave, you know, the fate of an NBA final series or an Eastern Conference final series, you know, not in the hands of of a LeBron James or an Anthony Davis. They're going to make Danny Green hit three after three after three. And if he hits a cold stretch in the middle of that series, if he starts getting in his own head, if Contavious Caldwell-Pope isn't completely on point for seven games, then you may be in, you know, stuck in a really bad way against, again, one of the best players in the world in Giannis and a team that's really built to be suited to his strengths. So if we were to make a Bucks blog today, Rob, what, what would be your, your, uh, your name for it? Oh God, this is a, this is such a hard question. I feel like the, the hardest you know, one. <laughs> as I've seen, you know, all these different podcasts, team centric podcasts pop up, and they're trying to name them. And teams, you know, really the blog era has died. <laughs> so I guess the answer is the blogs don't exist anymore. And it's do you want to big make a buck centric Twitter account or podcast? Um, but I got nothing, man. I mean, I feel like you got to go. You have to go Greek oriented at this point, but you don't oh. want to get too abstract. It's it's tough. And then what happens if Giannis leaves? Then you then you really have some egg on your face. 
See, you're um, already thinking outside the box. I wouldn't even have thought of going Greek. I was already trying to make buck puns in my head. Like, <laughs> buck what you heard is the one you hear often, and yep. I try to cram into every buck's headline. Nuck if you buck is another popular one. I think there's a t-shirt around here somewhere uh, with that same slogan. So, I don't know. I appreciate that. See, you're already, you're already thinking ahead. You're two steps ahead of the entire field. I'm just trying to think of how we can connect the bucks to like souvlaki or something like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just hungry. <laughs> I think that's a good place to stop. Uh, all right. Well, thank you to Rob for joining us. We will be back next week uh, with Chris Ryan, hopefully in tow. Until then, enjoy the hoops. Basketball is very good. Basketball is very good.